Hello, this is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service with reports and analysis from across the world. The latest news seven days a week. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Tara sagt Clark. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code Tara sagt Clark. How can AI solve your business challenges? What's the best way to lead a new sustainability strategy? Staying ahead in your career isn't about knowing the answers, it's about finding them. Learn how to find the answers you need by studying online with London Business School's world-class faculty and industry experts. Search LBS online today. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. Hollywood Exiles, from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Global News Podcast from the BBC World Service. I'm Nick Miles, and at 14 Hours GMT on Wednesday, the 28th of February, these are our main stories. Alexei Navalny's widow, Yulia, attacks President Putin in a powerful address to the European Parliament. There's been a sharp rise in the number of people seeking asylum inside the European Union. South Korea says its birth rate has fallen to a record low, raising concerns its working age population will halve within decades. Also in this podcast, why the British government is spending millions to improve the safety of members of parliament and... There are people here who are absolutely disgusted by him. Can you tell me how you think you ended up in that place? Yeah, I'm going to tell you everything. A new documentary that lifts the veil on the story of the disgraced fashion designer, John Galliano. The funeral of the late Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny will be held in Moscow on Friday, two weeks after he died in prison. He was serving a nine-year sentence in Siberia after being convicted of extremism by the Russian authorities. On Wednesday, his wife, Yulia Navalnaya, addressed the European Parliament in Strasbourg. In an impassioned speech, she said her husband was tortured for three years before he was murdered, describing President Putin as the head of an organised crime gang who cannot be reasoned with. If you really want to defeat Putin, you have to become an innovator. You have to stop being boring. You cannot defeat him by thinking he is a man of principle who has morals and rules. And Alexei realized that a long time ago. You are not dealing with a politician, but with a bloody monster. Our Europe correspondent Nick Beek is in Strasbourg. 
I think certainly this was a really supportive audience for the message that was being sent out. And there was a comparison being drawn with elections that will take place in Europe later this year where Yulia Navanau was saying that the candidates would be free to do interviews with who they wanted to and they'd be able to put out videos, messages, uh, canvas on the streets. And that simply isn't the case in Russia and that people should you know, think long and hard. It's all well and good passing resolutions and imposing more sanctions on Vladimir Putin. But she says the world needs to be more innovative to deal with a man like him. She said he wasn't a politician. She referred to him as a mobster, someone who you know, would run a mob and says that it's only mafia money which is supporting him and his regime. And it's through tackling that money and the wealth of those around him that actually some sort of progress can be made. And ultimately, the dream that her husband had and didn't get to see of a different Russia, a beautiful Russia, as she said it, it's only at that point could that dream be achieved. And when she spoke about Putin must answer for what he's done to a neighbouring peaceful country, speaking about Ukraine there, there's another reminder to European politicians that the money that is forthcoming at the moment needs to carry on into the future. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was quite interesting. That was a comment quite near the end of her speech, but she did refer to what was happening uh, in Ukraine in the context that she said Vladimir Putin had to be held responsible, held account and made to pay for what he had done to his own country, Alexei Navalny's own country, Russia, but also what he'd done in Ukraine, choosing the word peaceful to talk about Ukraine as a victim in the the full-scale invasion of two years ago. And also, she said, Vladimir Putin needs to be held accountable for what's happened to the Navalny family. So she did mention that. And I think, of course, that will be fresh in the mind of the politicians here in Strasbourg, but also in other parts of Europe. The fact that this call from Ukraine is really loud and clear. We haven't got enough money. We haven't got enough weapons. And you need to do a lot more if we are to defeat Vladimir Putin and push back the Russians from Ukraine. Nick Beek. In recent years, many political parties that take a hard line on immigration have gained popularity. Well, today, those parties, in Europe at least, are likely to look at new research and say, this backs up our concerns. 2023 saw a record increase in asylum claims in European Union countries, up almost 18% to more than a million people. Nearly a third of them made their bids in Germany. Both Norway and Switzerland, which are not in the EU, saw a similar rise in applications. I've been speaking to our Europe correspondent, Jessica Parker. The report talks about the different nationalities coming here and some of the list is not a surprise. So the highest number by far is Syrians coming to the EU and seeking asylum, fleeing war, then followed by Afghans. Now, that isn't very surprising. What is more interesting, perhaps, or surprising, if you crunch the numbers, is actually Turkish nationals lodged nearly 100,000 applications last year. Now, that's up by 82% on the year before. And then there's, of course, a long list of various nationalities, but those are the kind of some of the main ones. So coming to the EU for different reasons and then seeking asylum here with various success rates. But as you said, it's now a seven-year high for the European Union and including as well Norway and Switzerland. So as you say, it will be something I think that while it isn't a surprise because we knew that month by month the numbers were looking pretty high for 2023, this is the first time we've seen that year-round figure of what happened last year from the EU Asylum Agency.
And Jessica, these kind of figures will always stoke a lot of political debate. In terms of that debate in Europe at the moment, is there consensus about how to divvy up these claims in a fair way? The EU did, after lots of wrangling and sort of a long drawn out saga, reach a deal on a migration pact back in December. And what that's looking to do is to share the distribution more fairly as some countries would see it, those that feel that they get a disproportionate number of applications. So share them based on GDP, expedite claim procedures. And I guess this year will be a bit of a test as to, um, I think the deal may still need a a few I's uh, dotting and T's crossing, but whether that actually works alongside efforts by individual nations within the EU to strike bilateral deals, whether that is what Italy's been seeking to do with Albania, where they're trying to place asylum seekers, or Germany striking returns deals with countries like Morocco. Jessica Parker in Berlin. Well, if increasing numbers of asylum seekers and migrants is concerning some people in Europe, South Korea might be seen as having the opposite problem. It has once again beaten its own record for the lowest birth rate in the world. Despite billions spent encouraging women to have more children, the average expected in a lifetime is now 0.72. And to put that number into perspective, it needs to be 2.1 to keep the total population the same. Politicians have called this a national emergency. Our sole correspondent, Jean McKenzie, sent this report. It's a rainy Tuesday and Yejin is cooking lunch for her friends at her small apartment in Seoul. As they sit down to eat, one of them pulls up a meme of a dinosaur. What is this cartoon saying? Be careful. Don't let yourself go extinct like us, the dinosaur says. It's funny. But it's dark, says Yejin, a 30-year-old TV producer. We know we're causing our own extinction. <laughs> Neither she nor her friends are planning on having children. It's hard to find a dateable man in Korea, one who'll share the chores and the childcare, she tells me. And so she's decided to focus on her career, which doesn't leave enough time to raise a child anyway, she says. Korean working hours are notoriously long. I love my job, but in Korea, you're stuck in a perpetual cycle of work. We also have this mindset that if you don't continuously study outside work, you're going to get left behind and become a failure. And this fear makes us work twice as hard. Hi, everyone. I've come to an after-school club to meet Stella, who teaches five-year-olds English. Look at the kids. They're so cute, she says. My husband and I wanted a child, but we've both been so busy working. Now I see that if I had a baby, I'd have to stop work for at least two years to look after it, and I'd be very depressed stuck at home. This expectation that women have to leave their jobs after having a child was common among those I met. But even if Stella wanted to take time off, she says she couldn't afford to have a child. In Korea, children are sent to expensive after-school classes, like the one Stella teaches. And to opt out is seen as setting your child up to fail. I wanted to get a mother's perspective, and so I'd come to meet Chongyun as she picks her two young children up from school. Hello. Hello. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. My daughter is 
a little bit shy. So. <laughs> we tour playgrounds, passing the hours until her husband gets back from work. He's rarely home for bedtime. Chung Yun is in what she calls a single parenting marriage. At first, I felt so angry. I've been well educated and taught that women were equal, so I couldn't accept this. This sits at the heart of the problem. Over the past 50 years, Korea's economy has developed at breakneck speed, propelling women into the workforce. But the roles of wife and mother have barely evolved. Now, I'm past the feelings of anger and regret. I just wish I'd known more about the reality of raising kids and how much mothers are expected to do. The reason women aren't having children now is because they are brave enough to talk about these things. Back at Yejin's apartment, these women know Korea's birth rate is a problem, but they don't feel it's theirs to solve. Somebody else will solve that. Next generation. That report was by Jean McKenzie. Around the world, 47 million women are estimated to begin the menopause every year, often with profound effects on their physical and mental health. For some women, the wide range of symptoms from hot flushes and trouble sleeping to depression and memory problems can be managed through hormone replacement therapy, or HRT. But many women don't have access to the drugs or choose not to take them. Now, new research has found that some alternative therapies and even self-help techniques can make a big difference. Our health reporter, Aurelia Foster, told us more about the findings. Menopause, like you say, it can cause all sorts of very distressing symptoms, physical and psychological. And most studies that we've had in recent years have all been around hormone replacement therapy, HRT. Increasingly, though, there's been more and more evidence coming through in recent years that talking therapies, CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy and mindfulness do have real benefits when it comes to things like low mood, feeling anxious and depressive symptoms that often come along with menopause and a drop in hormone levels in in the body. And actually, they're widely used as a treatment for depression and anxiety in many countries already. This study by University College London has taken data. It's it's a meta-study. So it's looked at 30 studies done in recent years across 14 countries, the UK, the United States, Iran, Australia, China, involving 3,500 women with menopausal symptoms looking at how things like CBT and mindfulness and other talking therapies help those symptoms. So with uh, CBT and mindfulness, there was a significant reduction in anxiety and depressive symptoms, significant effects of CBT on memory and concentration, interestingly. And CBT and mindfulness actually were found to improve overall quality of life in many women as well. So partly this is about developing mental strategies, coping strategies, if you like, and tackling cycles of negative thought, which are key in low mood. Also, though, the evidence suggests that these therapies aren't just about how you think, but they could have some physical effects, especially to do with mindfulness. So that's relaxation techniques, largely. Some of the research has found uh, in the past that these can help with hot flushes. So these can be very embarrassing for some women, potentially make them feel very anxious. And that anxiety could potentially cause further hot flushes. There's also some research that Practicing meditation can help sleep as well, which has numerous benefits. Aurelia Foster. 
The department store, Macy's, which opened its first shop in 1858, became one of the U.S.'s most famous brands and has been the go-to for fashion and beauty for years. But the business has now announced plans to close 150 stores, more than a fifth of its empire, over the next three years, and focus more on luxury shopping instead. Sam Fenwick asked retail analyst Neil Saunders to give us his take on the news. The axe is cutting deep because Macy's really needs to get its house in order in terms of optimizing the number of stores it has, and that's very important because one of the other things that they want to do is invest more in the stores that remain. So they don't want to put investment into stores that they don't really think have a future or that aren't going to deliver a return on that investment. So they're being very surgical and they're taking out. Stores that they just don't think have a future in their portfolio, and that is quite harsh. It is a deep cut. There's a lot of stores that are going to be closed as a result of this. But arguably, it's something that Macy's probably should have done before. It just hasn't pruned as it's gone along. So now we've got this massive wave of closures coming as Macy's tries to right size. Online shopping compared to other markets. Has been in the past fairly immature in the US. Is it finally starting to catch up? Are the US consumers starting to really embrace it like European consumers are? Yes, I think it's fair to say that the pandemic pushed a lot more people to shop online, and online has become a much more significant part of the market. It's not quite at the level in the US as it is in the UK, for example. The UK is a very advanced market. It's not at the level of China, which is another very advanced online market. But it's certainly catching up, and it's becoming a more significant part of retail. That said, it's still important to remember that even in most categories and overall. Store sales are still the vast majority of retail sales in the U.S., so it's not the cause of all of Macy's problems. Neil Saunders. Still to come. The humidity increase and also the carbon dioxide, and this reacts with the surface of the work of art. We meet the art restorers trying to undo some of the damage caused by so many tourists visiting the Vatican's Sistine Chapel. The global story helps make sense of the headlines with expert analysis from BBC journalists around the world. Social media has essentially siloed a lot of young men and women into different algorithmic bubbles. Men and women inhabiting the same environment in the real world, but very different ones online. One global story at a time, in detail, every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. For those Russians who sympathise with Alexei Navalny, it will cast a, a very dark shadow. This looks like a message. Search for the global story wherever you get your BBC. How can AI solve your business challenges? What's the best way to lead a new sustainability strategy? Staying ahead in your career isn't about knowing the answers; it's about finding them. Learn how to find the answers you need by studying online with London Business School's world-class faculty and industry experts. Search LBS online today. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shopping-Gutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch. 
ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code TARASAGCLARK. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30-Euro-Shopping-Gutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code TARASAGCLARK. Podcasts. The results are in for the presidential primaries in the U.S. state of Michigan. Both President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump easily won their respective elections and look set to face each other again as the Democrat and Republican nominees in November. President Biden's win came despite a protest vote by Democrats angry over his support for Israel's war against Hamas in Gaza, as we heard from CBS reporter Jared Hill. When it comes to his stance as the Democratic nominee, this really doesn't make that big of a dent. We, though, are talking about, at last check, about a 100 or so thousand people in the state of Michigan voting uncommitted. Now, it's impossible to know at this point whether all of them were uncommitted for those reasons that we saw the, the protest vote campaign. But this is a pretty sizable number, and this is not typical for that state in a primary election. And so while President Biden has obviously won the state of Michigan here, this is a chance for these protest voters to say, we don't like what you're doing when it comes to Israel and Gaza and Hamas. And we may not be there in November when you need us to vote for you for the general election. So again, a lot to see here how and if time changes some of that, how and if the Biden campaign and administration change some of their efforts as well. And so that's something to watch out for. As things stand, do you think the uncommitted vote could swing the overall presidential race? Not likely looking at the numbers again, because this is only about 12 or so percent of the vote in the state of Michigan. And while there is some question around whether there could be momentum for this type of movement in some of the other states, at least At this point, it doesn't seem as though that would sway the vote. That would be enough, potentially, again, obviously, depending on how many people turn out to vote for either candidate in November, that it could be a sizable chunk. But it doesn't at this point seem as though the majority of those uncommitted voters, at least not in Michigan, would go toward, let's say, former President Trump if he ends up being the nominee for the Republicans. But there is the question of whether this could be a moment of people staying home and sitting out the vote altogether. Jared Hill. Well, as we heard there, the conflict in Gaza continues to have political ramifications around the world. Here in Britain, it does as well, where the heated debate over whether or not politicians support a full ceasefire has seen an increase in threats of violence to sitting MPs. Such is the concern about their safety that the British government has announced a multi-million dollar package to improve the safety of MPs. The policing minister, Chris Philp, said democracy needed to be protected. We don't think uh, that intimidation of publicly elected officials uh, has any place in a civilised democracy. Each MP needs to feel able, and in fact councillors and elected mayors and police and crime commissioners, need to be able to speak and vote as their consciences and their views dictate without any kind of external intimidation. Our political correspondent Rob Watson told me more about the government's reasons for these measures. They're being put in place now because of the spike in attacks since October the 7th. It's as simple as that. And although we haven't got 
precise facts and figures. The police have been careful to keep that quiet. We know that the threats of violence against members of parliament, councillors and local government, they have all been absolutely skyrocketing. And we know that one MP has had their constituency office burned down and another one, of course, had what has been referred to as a mob outside his home. So it's that upping, a massive increase in the threat level to politicians. So, Rob, what is being put in place for people? All the sort of things you'd expect. So, first of all, there's more funding. It's probably about $40 million, and it's things like bodyguards being made available. I mean, extraordinary to just say it, Nick. Bodyguards for MPs, surging police patrols in areas where there are dangers of community tension, more provision of private security, so advice on things like cyber security to MPs, a whole sort of slew of practical measures that you would expect and which sort of seem normal when you say them, but then shocking if you think about them. And British MPs are particularly exposed because of the nature of the constituencies, that they meet people on a daily basis about local concerns, don't they? Yes, and interestingly, all of the politicians are agreed about the fact that political intimidation is a bad idea, a terrible thing. All of them are agreed that you wouldn't want to change that phenomenon that you were just talking about, the constituency system where most Thursdays and Fridays MPs are back in the 650 constituencies meeting their people in offices up and down the country. But what's really been striking is that while they're agreed that you don't want intimidation, you want to keep that openness, there's a lack of unity in political response. And what I mean by that is that across the parties, most British politicians would recognise the biggest terrorism threat in the UK is from Islamic extremists. There's also concern amongst the parties about the phenomenon of Islamism. But rather than uniting, they haven't been able to resist that sort of partisan desire to have a go at each other so you know you've got the conservatives saying Labour is frightened to stand up to Islamic extremists and anti-Semitism because it's worried about upsetting Muslim voters and you've got Labour accusing the conservatives of Islamophobia because they want to stoke culture wars so yes unity in terms of security but absolute not unity in terms of political coming together and purpose. Rob Watson. A former paramilitary leader in Colombia, Salvatore Mancuso, has been extradited from the US after serving a lengthy jail term for drug trafficking. Mancuso, once the second-in-command of the right-wing AUC paramilitary group, is accused of being involved in hundreds of murders and disappearances in Colombia. He was flown to Bogota and handed over to the authorities in handcuffs and wearing a bulletproof vest. Luis Fajardo from BBC Monitoring in Miami told us more about him. Salvatore Mancuso has been an extraordinarily controversial figure in Colombian history. He was a warlord from the right-wing paramilitaries, as they were known in the late 20th century and early 21st century. He was leader, actually, of a very powerful private army that fought communist guerrillas in Colombia and was responsible for thousands, literally thousands, of very serious human rights violations. Mancuso and the right-wing death squad that he was leading joined the peace talks with the government of the time in the early 21st century, and eventually he was extradited to the United States where he faced drug charges He was convicted of drug trafficking, and he spent more than a decade in a U.S. prison. When he was finally released a few years ago, Mancuso, who is joint Colombian and Italian national, he also tried to be sent to Italy, but the U.S. government decided 
that he was being sent to Colombia instead, and he has arrived in Colombia now. What is likely to happen to him? Well, he has been uh, received in a very substantial security operation. He's supposed to have uh, almost a wing of a prison, almost for himself, with many, many guards, many security measures, because he also faces, besides convictions, many, many criminal charges, literally for thousands of homicides. So he would have to spend a lot of time in prison. But he is also working with the Colombian government in a new peace process that is trying to incorporate other illegal armed organizations in Colombia into a peace process. And because of such activities supported by the government, he is expected to give testimony on what he has said was the cooperation of many important business people and figures of the Colombian establishment with that uh, violence that happened uh, 20 years ago with the Colombian right-wing paramilitary groups. So there's a lot of expectation of what he might be able to say, besides the expectations of many, many victims of these uh, right-wing paramilitary organizations, that justice would finally come to them after many years of waiting. Have there been any reactions to his return home? It has been the subject of immense criticism and immense controversy in Colombia. It is a very painful subject. And uh, some people complain about the possibility that because of his collaboration with the government in this process and because of his disposition to give uh, testimony about the alleged participation of many members of the establishment in these crimes, that he might actually get a very, very substantial, lenient treatment or even a sort of a pardon for his crimes, that he could actually walk free eventually in a relatively short time. Luis Fajardo speaking to Beverly Ochieng. The British fashion designer John Galliano is one of the most successful names in the business, but also one of the most controversial. In 2011, he lost his job at the top of Dior after a video emerged of him making an anti-Semitic and racist outburst on the streets of Paris. And now the story of his chaotic career will be told in a new documentary, the aptly titled High and Low. Disgraced fashion designer John Galliano is in court today facing charges of anti-Semitic behaviour. He didn't apologise. Do you feel betrayed? John Galliano is out of Christian Dior. There are people here who are absolutely disgusted by him. Can you tell me how you think you ended up in that place? Yeah, I'm going to tell you everything. Director of the documentary, Kevin MacDonald, has been speaking to the BBC's Martha Carney. He was always known as the enfant terrible of British fashion. His career started at St Martin's Art School in the early 80s. And I think over the next 10 years, he won British Fashion Designer of the Year three times. Each win was followed pretty quickly by a bankruptcy, and his companies kept going bankrupt. And then in 1994, he was made the first British designer to run a major fashion label in France when he went to Dior and there he stayed for 15 years and he was the biggest name in in fashion really for all that period. But throughout that time his self-destruction, his self-destructive instincts got worse and worse didn't they until it ended up with that uh, drunken anti-Semitic tirade and one of the clever things about the film, I watched it last night, is in my own mind, I was going backwards and forwards about whether I thought he was anti-Semitic or not. I wondered whether you reached any conclusion. Well, in a way, you as the audience member know as much as I do, because you're seeing really the evidence that there is pro and con him as you sort of listen to people on his side talking about it. And those people 
include Kate Moss and Naomi Campbell. And then you have people who were the victims of this abuse talking who have not forgiven him for, for what happened. Personally, I don't think he's anti-Semitic. I don't think in any way he's ideologically anti-Semitic. Um, I think he's the most unpolitical person you could imagine. I think he was deeply self-destructive. He was a terrible addict. I think he still is an addict. And maybe the explanation is that he was trying to destroy himself so that the whole the train would stop as it was you know, running at 100 miles an hour towards a brick wall. He was definitely on his way to killing himself. And this was a way maybe to, to save himself, a cry for help, I suppose you might say. But how much has he really gone into what he did wrong? Because there's a telling moment in the film where you say to him there were two racist incidents. Three, in fact. And he, three, there were three in the end, yeah, but he, he looks and you go, no, no, there was only one, there was only one. And he didn't seem to quite realise what he'd done. Yeah, it is an extraordinary moment, isn't it? And it's kind of what I love about documentaries. You never really know what's going on inside people's heads. Why would he say that? He must remember that. If he was taken to trial in France over these anti-Semitic incidents. And my explanation is I don't think he can be trying to just pull the wool over my eyes. He'd be pretty naive to do that. I think probably what he's doing is he's in denial. He's created a story, a narrative that allows him to live with himself and a narrative which he can trot out and tell people that makes him maybe not sound so bad. Certainly convinced the fashion world, just briefly, he's had an astonishing new show. Yeah, his latest show on a month ago in Paris is being hailed as the best fashion show of the millennium. It's extraordinary. So, yeah, he's bowed but undefeated. Kevin MacDonald. The Sistine Chapel in Vatican City is considered one of the finest examples of high Renaissance art. Its walls and ceiling adorned with Michelangelo frescoes. But the draw of its beauty has been its undoing, it seems. Six million tourists visit every year, and they're having a big impact on the artworks. The BBC went behind the scenes to meet the small team of experts protecting them. Sara Monetta reports. You were kindly requested to remain silent. A stunned crowd slowly paces on the inlaid marble floor, their eyes on the vault, their mouths half opened in amazement. The Sistine Chapel is part of one of the most visited museums in the world, up to 25,000 tourists a day, but that comes at a price. So for a few weeks every year, after the last visitor is gone, experts get to work. If you imagine thousands of people contemporary present in the chapel, this means that the humidity increases and also the carbon dioxide. And this reacts with the surface of the work of art. Francesca Persagati is the head of the painting lab at the Vatican Museums. We may have condensation, is like... Water on the surface, dust, deposit, because dust means also dangerous compounds. Climbing onto a crane operated from the ground, Francesca is lifted high up under the vault, just a few centimetres away from the image of Jesus raising his arm. She and her team are inspecting the scene of the Last Judgment to spot any signs of deterioration. We have here some alterations, some light whitening. Now we need to understand what caused it. At the opposite end of the chapel, experts on a scaffolding are taking high-resolution photos to map sections of the frescoes. Fabio Moresi is the head of the scientific lab. He shows me a stunningly detailed close-up of a character in a sidewalk fresco. It's a self-portrait of Perugino the author of the scene. To get these details, we took 20 separate photos 
and we piece them back together to obtain this extremely high-resolution image. At such high resolution, we can see down the single paint crystal, and this allows us to see over time if there have been changes or dust deposits. After the last restoration 30 years ago, sensors and an air conditioning system were installed to keep a stable environment in the chapel. But since then, the number of visitors has soared, requiring more intensive maintenance. Last year, we closed our uh, 2023 with uh, nearly 7 million people in a year. Barbara Yatta is the director of the Vatican Museums. It's an important mission to be an open house. It's exactly what Pope Francis is asking to us, and it's exactly the line in, in which we are going, trying to balance, of course, the welcoming with the preservation of our incredible collections that are surrounding us. It's a fine line to ensure that present and future generations will still be able to gasp in awe every time they look up at Michelangelo's masterpiece. Sara Manetta at the Sistine Chapel. And that's all from us for now, but there will be a new edition of the Global News Podcast later on. If you want to comment on this podcast or the topics covered in it, you can send us an email. The address is globalpodcast at bbc.co.uk. You can also find us on X at Global News Pod. This edition was mixed by Chesney Forks Porter and the producer was Judy Frankel. The editor is Karen Martin. I'm Nick Miles and until next time, goodbye. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you